Good morning. We have really enjoyed being here the past six months. Haven't missed uh, very many Sundays, I don't think. Just a couple while we were in Kansas. Uh, And we're going to miss you all for the next three weeks. Uh, All of my family loves being here. We're all encouraged every time uh, we come here. And I wanted to leave you with what I think is a very uh, practical lesson. And uh, I don't know how many of you all take notes, but... Uh, If you take notes, uh, today, either your hand's going to get worn out from jotting down scriptures, or you can have the cheat sheet afterwards. I don't want to pass them out before, because I don't want you reading up ahead of me in my sermon. But afterwards, I've got uh, all 52 of the things that I'm covering. Yep, 52 points in this sermon. Uh, Most of them work uh, through very quick, but we're going to do a little digging deeper into uh, the Lord's Supper And we're going to start by talking about Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, When he was a boy, uh, he told his mother, Mitty, that he was afraid to go to church. Uh, he, He was terrified of the zeal, he said. And she asked him what he meant. What do you think zeal is? He says, I'm not sure, but I think it must be some kind of a a scary large animal like an alligator or a dragon or something, the zeal. And... He says, I heard the preacher read about it from the Bible, uh, and the verse he was talking about was John 2.17. He says, and his disciples remembered that it was written, the zeal of thine house has eaten me up. And he thought he was going to be eaten up by the zeal, that the zeal was going to get him. Now, I suppose there are some uh, scary verses in the Bible, right? But I don't think that's one of them. Uh, I think that verse, when you understand what it's talking about, is not particularly scary. But we are going to start with a a fairly scary verse, and that's 1 Corinthians 11, 29, which it says, For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Partaking of the Lord's Supper can be spiritual poison if you are not prepared and if you are not observing it and and taking it correctly. It is spiritual poison to you. That's what that verse is saying. You're drinking and eating damnation to yourself. Instead of a positive thing, it becomes a negative thing. And so while we're taking of the Lord's Supper and while we're engaging in the Lord's Supper, I think it's very important that we do so correctly. Right, I think it's very important that we do so scripturally. And I think it's important that we do it in a way that enriches our life as well as worships God according to the way he has instructed us to do. The Lord's Supper represents the death, the body, and the blood of the Christ, right? For the remission of our sins, it's the very heart of the gospel, the good news. It's part, really, of the Great Commission. It's, it's Mark's record of the commission says the gospel is to be to preached to every creature. And the gospel has to do, first, with the fact that Christ died for our sins. We get that in 1 Corinthians 15, 1-3. It defines the gospel as the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. 
So it's fitting that we present this monument of his death that we have maintained for almost 2,000 years in the church weekly. The Bible never uses the term sacrament, but it does speak of the Lord's Supper. Uh, It speaks of uh, the Lord's table. It speaks of the communion. It speaks of the breaking of bread when referencing the Lord's Supper. Now, I've noted that some congregations, even of the Lord's Church, have changed the way they commemorate the Lord's Supper because they say that seekers, that is, visitors to to church, we used to call them sinners, but now they call them seekers, evidently, the idea that uh, they are not part of the body of Christ, and so they just get really bored during the Lord's Supper. And, And so instead of taking the Lord's Supper, they say, well, if there's anybody here that wants to partake of the Lord's Supper, we're going to sing a song, and during that song you can be dismissed to another room, uh, and and it's been prepared there. So anybody who wants to partake of the Lord's Supper can, but uh, we're not going to to take the time during our our worship service uh, to do that because it's boring. Isn't that odd? What's the most holy place on earth? That's the question I I would like to ask. And During the Old Testament times, for much of the Old Testament times, it was really easy to answer that question, right? When when the tabernacle was there, when the temple was there, there was actually a room called the Most Holy Place. That was the holiest place on earth. And really, if you want to be even more specific about it, it's the mercy seat between the wings on the Ark of the Covenant, where they call it, the Jews called it the Shekinah, the the actual visual representation of God that is there, where God spoke to uh, the high priest, where God spoke to uh, sometimes his prophets, even sometimes to David. And that was the most holy place on earth. Well, of course, it was destroyed. Uh, Multiple times the temple has been destroyed, and that's no longer the case. So, Now, in the Christian age, some have said that the holiest place on earth is actually Golgotha. It's it's the hill where Jesus was crucified. That's the holiest place on earth. I I don't think that can be the holiest place on earth, and I say that for a couple of reasons. One, we don't know exactly where that was. Uh, We we have a couple of places that are candidates for where that was. The archaeology and the history seems to point to what they call the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which was built over Golgotha. But in the 4th century, there was a pagan uh, ruler who destroyed that church, and he actually removed the hill. He He had workers, he had slaves, remove the hill so that people would stop worshiping Jesus there and stop going there. But we're not even sure that's the exact right place. I put forth that the most holy place today is around the Lord's table. When we commune with Christ, we commune with each other, and we commune with the church the world over who has been commemorating this all day long somewhere in the world as the church meets, we are all partaking of the Lord's Supper. And when we do that, and when we commune together with Christ, that is the most holy place 
on earth. Jesus even talks about it when he talks to the woman in the well. He says, there'll be a time when you won't go to this mountain and, and our people won't go to Jerusalem, but you'll worship me everywhere, right? You'll worship God everywhere. We do that now, and the most holy place is when we come around the Lord's table. And we need to consider it holy. We need to take it seriously. God directed them to remember the Jews, the Passover, once a year. It was such an important feast, right? The, the most important feast about the most important event in Jewish history, the, the Passover and the Exodus from uh, escaping out of Egyptian bondage. And God instructed them to remember that once a year. And Jesus establishes the Lord's Supper, the communion, on Passover, after the Passover meal. That's when he establishes it. But he doesn't say remember it once a year. He says remember me every first day of the week, right? So we're directed approximately 52 times a year to get together and participate in the Lord's Supper weekly, right? Because it's a greater thing than the Exodus. It's a greater thing than the Passover, It's wider ranging. There's all sorts of ways that it is better. Hebrews talks a lot about that sort of thing. We're not going to go in depth about that, but it's clearly better to be delivered, all people delivered from sin, than than just the Jewish people being delivered from bondage of slavery in Egypt. And so we are to commemorate it weekly. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to go into some meditations about the Lord's Supper. In other words, I want to focus on some ways that we can look at the Lord's Supper as we're partaking of it, as we can think about Christ, as we are rightly discerning his body. That means we are deciding the right way to focus on Christ, to keep him in mind, his body in mind, what he sacrificed for us in his death, burial, and the resurrection, where we put our hope. Right, So we're going to look at 52 different ways really quickly. We're going to go through them. I don't I want to be here all day. I also don't want to go over because I want to be sure we have time as, as we partake of the Lord's Supper uh, at the end, towards the end of our service, that we're focusing on Christ. I don't want anyone to feel uh, rushed during that time, particularly when we're talking about it for the whole service here. But I want to go through some things that will help us Keep in mind. And then the reason I printed it all out so you wouldn't have to jot notes furiously, uh, but if you want to take notes, you can. If you want to take pictures of any of the the scriptures, you can. Uh, I'll leave them up here as I I talk about them, and I'll try to keep up with the PowerPoint. You know, sometimes I get ahead of myself on it, but I'm going to do my best uh, to not do that today. And uh, if you are baptized as a teenager and you live out a normal lifespan, you will partake of the Lord's Supper approximately 3,500 times if you observe it weekly as you should. 3,500 times. I can understand how if you just do it the same way every single time, it becomes almost ritual, it becomes almost boring or or not impacting deeply. And I think I have really enjoyed this study. I've I've spent more time uh, on this study this week and looking at these verses and thinking about these things than I have uh, any of the other sermons that I've delivered since I've been here, I think. And 
I feel like it's going to, it's impacted me personally a lot. I feel like as I partake of the Lord's Supper today, I'm more prepared to focus and rightly discern the Lord's body than I've ever been. Because I've concentrated on it so much throughout this week. And the first way I want us to look at it, the first way I want us to think about the Lord's Supper is topically. I want to look at the accounts directly pertaining to the memorial feast of Christ. Now, they're all listed on the screen, uh, but we start with Matthew 26, 26 through 29, and the parallel accounts are Mark 14, 22 through 25, Luke 22, 14 through 20, where the Lord establishes the feast, right? He He's at the end of the Passover feast, and he establishes the Lord's Supper. And he says, this you're going to do in remembrance of me. And then in Acts 20 and verse 7, we get Paul wanting to stay long enough with the church there to participate in the Lord's Supper. Now, he is hurrying back to Jerusalem at that time. He wants to get there in time for the Jewish festival that's going to take place. And so he is hurrying back to Jerusalem, but he delays several days. He delays in order to be able to wait for the first day of the week and participate in the Lord's Supper with that church there. And of course, that's where he preaches until midnight. And then 1 Corinthians 10, 16 through 17 and verse 21, the idea here is that we are all one body, partaking of the one body of Christ that was sacrificed once, and the blood of Christ, and you can't sacrifice to idols and then come in and partake of the Lord's Supper. You have to be prepared. You have to be worthy of partaking of the Lord's Supper. You can't go worship idols and then come in and and just take of the Lord's Supper. Make sure all your bases are covered there. I've got, uh, you know, I've got my idols taken care of, and now I've got uh, the Lord taken care of. I think it's a really interesting passage I've never really thought about before as pertaining to the Lord's Supper, but it very clearly does, and it pertains to them partaking of it uh, in that way. And then 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 29, do in remembrance of me. Uh, if you just cover those and you take one of those a week to concentrate on and read as we're partaking of the Lord's Supper together, you've already got six unique material, uh, pieces of material to help you focus on Christ in a, in a new and slightly different way each time. The second way I'd like to do it is, is to take a look at textual, uh, looking at the actual death of Christ. These are the accounts of Jesus' death, and what better way to rightly discern the body of Christ than, than to focus on the very act itself, the very death of our Lord and Savior Jesus. When we look at Matthew 27, 32 through 66, Mark 15, 20 and 40 through 47, Luke 23, 26 through 56, and John 19, 16 through 42. I want to say all these out loud because I want it to be on the recording. Uh, in case anyone wants that later, they don't have the benefit of the PowerPoint or the notes. But some of these passages obviously are rather lengthy. You may not have time to read all of them during the Lord's Supper. But if you do, there's another four weeks of material. But if not, it could be more than four weeks. We are already up to ten weeks 
of it, of, of concentrating on different things around the Lord's Supper. And as, I, as you do that, I want you to think about this. As you read these passages and we read about the, the pain and suffering that Jesus went through in order to, to bring life and, and salvation to us, did you know, I just learned that this, this, this week during this study, that the word excruciating is a word that the Romans invented in Latin to talk about the actual anguish of the cross. In other words, this was an anguish that was so great, it was a pain that was so great and different than other types of pain. It's long-lasting and it's, it's very, very painful that they invented a new word, excruciat, the, the crucius in there, the cross, is actually in the word excruciating. Uh, I find that to be interesting and adding a dimension to the fact. I mean, obviously we know it was painful for, for Jesus to do what he did. But it's so painful that they invented a word to describe it, um, to describe that type of pain. And of course, we use that word uh, for all sorts of things. You, you can use it for uh, people use it saying, well, I'm behind a person in the, the shopping line at Walmart and uh, they've got a million items and coupon. It's just excruciating being behind them. Uh, I don't think that's an appropriate use of the word, right? When you, when you understand the depth that it has uh, in connection with the cross. The third uh, way that I'd like us to look is scripturally. And there are quite a few uh, of these. It's actually two slides worth of them. So I'm going to leave them each up uh, and, and briefly discuss uh, all of these. But uh, scripturally, I just want to take a look at the New Testament scriptures that focus on the cross and its deeper meaning. What does it mean to us as Christians that Jesus did this? And, and what are the dimensions to it? And how did it happen? And why did it happen that way? Romans 5, 6 through 11 is an excellent passage to start with. And we're going to just go through the New Testament and look at some of these. It's not an exhaustive list. It's just a, a way that if you, you have these in your Bible that you can make a little mark down throughout the year and concentrate on a different one each week, that I think it will enrich your understanding of the Lord's Supper, and it will be more impactful to you as we continue to partake of the Lord's Supper each week and remember Christ. Romans 5, 6 through 11 is while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We think about how much God loves us even before we were reconciled to him or had a way to be Reconciled with him. He loved us so much that he sent his son to die for us. 1 Corinthians 1 18 through 24 is the power of the cross is foolishness to those who are lost, to the world, right? It's foolishness. That's foolish. But to us, it's the power of God. And we, we can read that passage and, and focus on what we're doing and the reason for it and the reason. That God did that for us. First Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. We often talk about First Corinthians 15 as being the resurrection chapter. Uh, and this is where we get the classic definition of the gospel, of the good news. It's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. First Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. Second Corinthians 5, 18 through 21. God has reconciled us to him through 
Christ. And you think about that. I was thinking about this idea in preparing for my lesson on, on Romans 1 this morning. I didn't get to this part, so I'll, I'll throw it in here. Uh, the idea of being justified, being of justification in general. In, in our world, that means something different. If you, I was thinking about it like this. If you commit a crime, let's say it's the crime um, you're accused of murder. And you have actually killed someone. You have actually shot somebody, let's say. And they died. And you're going to go to court to be, to try to get, they're trying to get justice for that person. You're trying to get justified. You're trying to, to say, look, I, I didn't do this thing uh, where it, it counts as murder. My defense, let's say, is self-defense. Right? You're trying to prove that what you did was right. That this person, the reason they died is because they were trying to harm you in some way. And you thought you were either going to be uh, bodily harmed or, or killed if you didn't stop this person. So you had no malice. You did, you did not want to kill the person, uh, but you, you did that in self-defense. That's your defense to be justified. And let's say you're found not guilty. That's fine. And, and you're saying, okay, my justification is I was never guilty of, of murder. I was right in the thing that I did. That's not what justification means in the, in the New Testament. Justification of the New Testament means you are guilty of whatever it is, of the sin. We are guilty. And to be justified, we don't try to say that we were right. We don't try to prove that we were right. God justifies us. God took the initiative to reach out to us to justify us through his son. And if we become justified, if we accept his grace through obedient faith, then we are justified. It's like it never happened. It's not that we were right in doing the sin. We're justified in the sense that it never happened in God's mind. Isn't that a beautiful thing? We were wrong, but he's made us in a right state. It's it's a beautiful and wonderful uh, thing. He has reconciled us through Christ. Galatians 1, 3 through 4, Jesus gave himself for our sins. Galatians 2, 20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, right? We sing that song sometimes, uh, and, and that can help us focus on our participation in the Lord's Supper. As we're, we're partaking of the Lord's Supper, we're actually taking his body and his blood into us, right? We're becoming like Christ. We get to Ephesians 1. 3 through 14, we learn that God's plan to reconcile us to him through Christ predates the world. He came up with this plan before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 2, 4 through 9, he loved us even when we were dead in our sins. And we are saved by grace through faith, which is the gift of God. The idea that we were dead in our sins and he resurrected us. And, and that takes place in as we, we look at the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That's what Romans 6 is all about too, right? We're participating in his death when we're baptized into Christ so that we can participate in the resurrection from our sins, right? We're a new creature. It's a wonderful and beautiful thing. Philippians 3, 7 through 12. 12 we can't obtain righteousness through ourselves, there's, there's not a way for us to be so good that we're going to obtain righteousness, right? But only through Christ. Colossians 1, 12 through 23, we have a great inheritance. 
because he delivered us from the power of darkness. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, Jesus has delivered us from the wrath to come. We think about what's going to happen at the end of the world or at death when our fate is sealed. Our choices have been made and Jesus has saved us from the wrath to come. 2 Timothy 1.8 through 10, he's encouraging Timothy to be a partaker of the afflictions of the gospel. He's saying to Timothy, don't quit, right? Be just like I am if I'm in prison or I'm tortured, I'm doing that for Christ because of the gospel. Because Jesus has abolished death and brought life and immortality. It doesn't matter what they do to us here on earth. We're going to have a home with him in heaven. The second set of verses, starting in Titus 2, 11 through 14, Jesus has redeemed us from all iniquity. Titus 3, 4 through 7, he has made us justified by his grace so we can be heirs of salvation. We can be heirs and have the hope of eternal life. Hebrews 2, 9 through 18, he tasted death once for every man. And we have been sanctified, that is, we have been purified and set apart to a purpose. Uh, it, it's a wonderful uh, verse, of course, Hebrews, all throughout Hebrews, talking about how Jesus and the New Testament is better uh, in every way. Hebrews seven twenty six through 27, he doesn't have to op- offer up a daily sacrifice and first sacrifice for his sins, as the high priest did, before going in and sacrificing for the sins of the nation, his chosen people. He doesn't have to do that. Christ was sacrificed once for all and then raised up to sit at the right hand of God. He doesn't have to continually sacrifice because his sacrifice was perfect. And 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, we're redeemed not with corruptible things, but with incorruptible, perfect lamb of God without blemish. Right? That's why he doesn't have to be sacrificed over and over again. Because he was once sacrificed in a perfect way. And he was the perfect sacrifice. First Peter 2, 21-25, same thing. He bore our sins and he was perfect. He was the perfect substitute. First John 4, 9-10, he is our propitiation for our sins. Not a word we use very much, propitiation. I can't even say it very well. But what it means is... He's our perfect stand-in, substitute for us. We should have died, but we don't have to because he did that for us. Revelation 7, 9, and 14, this gift was for all people in all time, as long as we are washed in the blood of Christ. I cover all of those sections, and I don't want us to lose focus. I want us to be reminded of the one who loves us so much that he gave himself for us. He followed the will of the Father because God's love is so great for us. And all those verses, I think, can help us to concentrate on that. And if you were tracking with me with with any kind of ticker, you would note that we are now at 32 ways to look at the communion differently each week as we track through for an entire year. I would also suggest that going the extra mile here can can pay huge benefits. And what I mean by that, I mean 
you plan this out that I'm going to do this for the whole year. I'm going to look at different passages as we partake of the Lord's Supper and uh, look at it in different ways and see it from different perspectives. And throughout the week, knowing that plan is in place, you look at those verses ahead of time and you meditate on them, you pray about them, and you concentrate on them all week. When you get to the first day of the week and you use that verse in your meditation about the Lord's Supper, it's going to have a deeper impact on you. It's going to be that way because you have it written on your heart. I want to look at 1 Peter 3.18, which is another one we can add to this list. But just so you can kind of see and deconstruct how uh, this works... For Christ also, also hath once suffered, right? Hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. You start to look through this, and, and you read that verse, and then you go back and you take words or phrases from it and concentrate on them as we're protecting the Lord's Supper. Once. His death was one time offered, and it was final. He suffered. His death was excruciating, Right? Why? Well, it was for sins. It was his propitiation, his replacement for us needing to be in that place. And he was a perfect sacrifice, the just for the unjust. God sent the perfect one to replace us, the unjust, that he might bring us to God. His death was conciliatory. Right? We were able to bridge that gap that was between us and have a relationship with God again. He was put to death in the flesh. Some have said that Jesus didn't really come, didn't really live, didn't really die. He was just really a spiritual being. That's not the case at all. Jesus was flesh. He really died. He really felt the pain of suffering and death. And then he was quickened by the Spirit. His death was victorious. We are now up to 33, and I'm going to have to go quickly to finish out uh, this list and leave us plenty of time here at the end of service to concentrate on the Lord's Supper. Uh, I thought Katie would like this one because she's an artist. And so uh, a way to concentrate on the Lord's Supper is artistically. That is using uh, colors associated with Calvary. And what do these colors represent and what, what do they bring to our mind? Well, green can be the color, color of envy, right? For he knew that for envy they had delivered him, Matthew 27, 18. Yellow is the color we think of as, as cowardice often. He took water and washed his hands before the multitude. That's Pilate being a coward, not wanting to bear the responsibility of putting this man to death, Jesus. Gray is the color of unbelief. Pilate asks him, what is truth, right? He scoffs at the idea that there is objective truth. Purple, the color of royalty. That's, in this case, mockery. Hail, king of the Jews. And they put a, a robe on him and mocked him. White, the color of innocence, a lamb without blemish or spot, 1 Peter 1.19. Black, the color of sin. There was darkness over all the land as well. Crimson, the color of forgiveness, right? For this is my blood in the New Testament, which is shed for the remission of sins. Matthew 26, 28, and there's a, another passage, Isaiah 1, 18, prophesying about that. We are now up to 34. And another way that you can look at it is prophetically. We look at the prophecies in the Old Testament that talked about what Jesus was going to have to come and do. Now, there's just three 
on, on the board here. There are hundreds in the Old Testament. This is not in any way meant to be an exhaustive list, right? But here's three more to get us up to 37. Uh, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, and Zechariah 12, all being passages that are, are very well known uh, prophecies about the Christ and what he was going to do uh, as to prove that he was fulfilling scripture uh, and how that was going to be our salvation. Another way that I think is very appropriate for us to look at the Lord's Supper is poetically. Uh, oftentimes, uh, I think almost all the time, we sing a song in preparation for the Lord's Supper. And we usually say something like that. We said, this is a song to prepare our minds for the Lord's Supper, right? And we, we sing a song that relates in some way to the Lord's Supper or Jesus' death or life so that we can focus our minds on that. I think that's appropriate even during the Lord's Supper to, to pick up a songbook and read the words of some of these psalms. Uh, when I survey the wondrous cross or oh the depths and the riches or there's a fountain filled with blood or there's power in the blood or nailed to the cross or even songs that relate to it that you may not know the tune to, that we may never sing, but they can bring sort of a poetic idea and refocus your mind to what we are doing and what we are thinking about and why. I think that's a way to rightly uh, discern the body of Christ. Uh, if you just use those songs, then we are up to 39. The next way I'd like to look at is directionally. That is, we look inward, we examine self, we make sure that we are partaking of the Lord's Supper uh, in a right way, and that we are worthy. Uh, we look backward in remembrance to the cross, to Christ. We look upward to Jesus now sitting on the throne at the right hand of God. We look around at the family of God that we are communing with. And then we look ahead and we anticipate a time we will all sit at the banquet table with the king, with King Jesus. We're now up to 40. Another way to look at it is numerically, and I will just quickly go through these, but you have one Lord, right? That's Ephesians 4, 5. Uh, and the cross brought both freedom, salvation, as well as slavery, slavery to the Lord, but it's a different slavery. We now owe a debt that we could never repay and so it's our duty to go out and teach others. There were two thieves. Uh, we are reminded of our own sinfulness when compared to the sinless of God. There were three crosses. One died in sin. One died uh, free of sin, the penitent thief. And one died for sin, Jesus. There were four soldiers that separated the garments uh, and gambled over Jesus' garments. That's John 19, 23 through 24. There were five wounds. We'll do more on that in a moment. There were six hours. There were seven sayings of the cross. These words express forgiveness, hope, responsibility, loneliness, humanity, victory, and assurance. You can concentrate on those seven sayings. That gets us up to 47 ways. And then finally, we're looking at the wounds of Jesus. His back was, of course, beaten and torn open as he bore the cross, as he was scourged, and he showed mercy to us. Have we borne someone's burden? Have we 
helped someone shoulder their burden this week. The crown of thorns was placed upon his head. It can, it can remind us to bring our thoughts under subjection to God. The nails in his hands. Have I, I prayed? Have I served this week with my hands? The nails in his feet. Am I quick to run towards that which is good? Am I out there doing the work of the Lord? His side, which was pierced near his heart. Have I stayed near to God? Have I kept my heart pure to God? These are all the sorts of meditations that we can do as we partake of the Lord's Supper. And that gets us up to 52. Uh, Again, there are so many other ways to do it. I I often uh, was... Wendell Winkler taught this lesson. He's passed on now and gone on to his reward. But I I go back to this uh, often, and that is just alphabetically. And and go down through the letters of the alphabet. You can start anywhere in the alphabet. But A, agony, right? Assurance, atonement. Uh, And we think about ways, words based on the letters of the alphabet that, that apply to the Christ and, and what he did for us. There are so many ways to focus our mind and keep this memorial fresh every week. Let's not ever get just ritualistic and bored with something that's so holy and so wonderful and so deep that God put it in place to keep us together, right? To make us have the same purpose and keep the Lord's body in mind and what he did for us. By way of invitation, I will say this. If you are not a Christian, if you are not part of the body of Christ, then you have no place in any of this very special feast that we have each week. You can eat and drink the implements, but they don't have the same meaning to you because you are not part of Christ. You are not in the body. All blessings, all spiritual blessings are found in Christ, and we Obtain that through confession that Jesus is the Son of God, repentance that is turning away from our previous life, and baptism that is coming in contact with his blood, washing away our sins. We're then added to the church, added to Christ by the Lord. If you have done those things, but you've you've let yourself fall back into sin, we would encourage you to make that right this morning. Please do that. We can do that right now as we stand and sing. God is calling the prodigal come without delay. Hear, oh, hear him calling, calling now for thee. No new wonder so far from his presence not